back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. Excited to welcome the program, Caregiver Dave Nassani. Hey. Dave, 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 how are you? And you know, I'm man, awesome. it's July. I wanted to leave. It's been a love-hate <laughs> July. Computer crashes. I got hacked. I got challenges beyond belief, but also had a great month. It's the weirdest thing in the world to talk about a month. It talks lessons. It's one of those, but I wanted to go. I'm ready for August. I'm ready for normalcy, hopefully. We'll hope, Dave. But Dave, our guest today is going to talk about, and it's great that this topic, especially with Olympics. Have you been watching the Olympics, Dave? Yes. yes have I you? Have. I have I not. Have. I haven't at all. But this is the first year ever. I think sporting events, it's hard for me to watch sports since COVID. But go ahead and introduce our guest. Dichi is an 18-year-old teenage multicultural musician inspired by boxing to pursue his dream and lending his talents to raise awareness for the need for funding for local USA boxing clubs nationwide. Welcome to the show, Dichi. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you giving me this platform to talk Absolutely. about. Absolutely. No problem. So Dichi, you were, from the beginning, you've constantly, you wanted to be a musician, right? Growing up, especially now at this point in time, right? That's that, as an artist, that's a very important thing to you, isn't it? Definitely. It was um, when I was a kid, I always did music. I wasn't, it wasn't my, my, like, I enjoyed it. It wasn't my dream. It wasn't the goal. But when I was in high school, around sophomore year, I thought I didn't want to go to college because school is tough for me. I was a good. But I didn't enjoy it. So I felt I wanted to not go to college. And music was one of those things that was able to open up that door because there was something that I, it was something that I, was, that I'd always done that I enjoyed enough to the point where I could pursue as a career. And that was a career where I didn't need to go to college. Good, Dave. And you found that you were gifted. I guess. <laughs> where did your love of boxing come from? So I, I first started tuning into fighting when I was um, about three years ago or four years ago, now 2017, I started tuning into UFC during the Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor era. And that kind of got me interested into martial arts and fighting, whether that's boxing or jujitsu. Uh -huh. And I was severely out of shape in freshman year. I was like, um, like on the verge of obesity. Wow. And kind of exercise turned that around and over COVID all the gyms were closed. It was it was tough to like do like any workout besides like working out at your house. Sure. So in November I started working out again and at the gym that I'm at, um, I met this guy, Julio, who's like a boxing instructor. Uh -huh. And he kind of, I took one of his classes and I just fell in love because I'd always been watching fighting, but I'd never participated in actual training. Sure. But when I first, after that first class for boxing, I just fell in love with the sport and I just felt I wanted to do everything I can to support everyone that boxes because I know how tough it is. And I know the discipline that is involved in boxing now after I've participated. Wow. So it's, it, it means a lot to me, especially this week, last weekend, I went to Atlanta and I went to a gym um, for the charity event that we're doing. And then it really, it really like hit a special place in my heart. It, it like, um, at first I, it was, I didn't realize how much it meant to me until I, until we did the first charity event. Well, exactly. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. I want to bring up boxing. Dave never told you this. I did a fixed boxing match in a tough, like where I was supposed to fight somebody for the championship. And it was like, and it was not, it was a regular boxing match, but the promoter knew it was fixed. 
So basically, so talk about fixing boxing. We were talking about that before DC. I'm a former pro wrestler. I had to wrestle some, I had to fight someone boxing where we didn't pull punches 440 pounds. He was, he was considered one of the toughest men in West Virginia. So I would go out there and we'd fight and he says, you're pulling the punches, you're pulling the punch, hit me harder. Like, oh my goodness. And then I had to take the dive at the end of the fight. But what it, what it was interesting. You could have been was, a contender. I could have, I could have been a contender. Exactly. So I never <laughs> put that in my resume, former boxer, but Hey, you know what, whatever. But he was, you know, hitting punches. And then finally, when I had to be knocked out, I, I basically took the dive, but it, it was like, and say, Oh, he knocked out the seven footer boxer, you know, but what the sport does and brings is it's something that, not everyone does DC. That's the big thing I think that brings these larger than life characters. And, and we talk about boxing, professional wrestling, MMA. It's something that you just don't see the average person do. And I think that excites people. And also it's something that really gives them purpose, right? Definitely. And boxing is a sport where the amount of discipline that you need, there's been studies shown that participating in sports can lower crime rates, can lower your chance of, like um, yeah. delinquency, like they call it delinquency rates. So being like participating in out of school activities such as boxing can has a real positive impact. So by being able to do this charity and donate to these places, it'll help the communities around because there's 1700 boxing facilities. There used to be around 2000, but 300 had to close during COVID. Wow. And these 1700 boxing facilities have such a positive impact in their surrounding communities. And that's just the effect that boxing has on people like David Goggins. Um, David Goggins once said, he said, be an uncommon man. And that's why so many people are starting to box because if you can box, I feel like that already puts you as an uncommon man. That's already something that you have. That's like personal to you. It's not, no one else can do what you do. Everyone boxes differently. If, I'm, if you, if you, like know what i mean i mean yeah and it gives you confidence too that no bully's sure. gonna pick it on you or whatever you can protect your girlfriend so i'm surprised nope. that you never boxed never day in boxing how about workout did you ever do a boxing workout i would never done a boxing workout i played lacrosse my life i played lacrosse football soccer and and i also did weightlifting in high school but i never stepped in a in a ring and so is that how- is that something you want to do uh some one day it really would depend on your parents. What it would be I mean, <laughs> my parents would probably let me, maybe. But, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> they let you do. They let you do okay. the music route, so they at least let you, gave you. Yeah. All right. So they have not had this discussion yet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. but mainly it would probably be what it. It would be depending on what it's for. How like. Or if if you take a dive or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Huh. That's wrestling. Dave. Only Mar- only Neil does that. Only only I do that. I I, I, Marlon, I, I, I take Marlon Brando. So yes. anyone that pays me, I'll take a dive. All right. So let's get <laughs> back to Dichi. When we talk about specifically the event, tell us about the charity event. So everything that happened and some of the experience of last week. Yeah. So the charity event was on Saturday, and what it was is there was they're doing silver gloves boxing. It was it's a re it, it was. It was a tournament that if you won that tournament, you would advance to the regional tournament and then you would keep on advancing until you're at the national scale. So they were hosting that event at the gym that we were doing the charity event with. They were USA Boxing Gym, Lugo, Lugo's Boxing. 
and we went there on Friday, the day before, and we didn't even know, but one of the, there was an NBC reporter that came. I did a quick interview with him and we were kind of just going through on Friday, what we were going to do and just the run through of the event. And on Saturday for the actual event, um, we had a guy from NPR come down and I did a quick interview yeah. with him. We also interviewed Lugo, who was the, yeah. the owner of the gym. And then also a guy from Getty Images came and took pictures of everything. And it was, wow. it was just, it was great. It was so much unexpected stuff ended up happening. And the people there were just such good people. I, I'd never been to a real like gritty boxing gym because it was a very like gritty, hardworking, like blue collar gym, if that makes sense. And I had never been in that environment. And after going to that environment, everyone was so welcoming. Everyone was so nice. And it really, like, that's why I said, like, after doing that first event, it, like, really hit, like, a special place in my heart. Listen, I want to do this. I want to keep on doing this. So you're getting a lot of recognition for donating all that money to keep these boxing clubs open? Definitely. Uh, that were closed from COVID? Yeah. Are they permanently closed or are they just temporarily closed? Those three. Uh, the there's 300 gyms that were permanently closed. Oh, my gosh. Oh my gosh. And you can only imagine the effect that that would have on the community. Because yeah. when I went to the gym in when I went to the gym in Atlanta, there was probably 40, 50, 60 boxers that showed up just to that event. Not everyone was fighting, but that's 40 or 50 boxers that sure. showed up to that gym to watch the event or partake in the event. Wow. When you well, maybe, maybe you can do a charity event to get those uh, 300 clubs back open. Yeah, for sure. That's like that would be um, most likely in the future because we still have the 1700 gyms. <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's really important. Like, the, the change that they can have, if, if, um, if done properly, it's, it's, the change can be huge. Yeah, absolutely. You're getting all the PR that you feel that you need, or is it never enough? Never enough for PR. I mean, you could have tons and tons of PR, but it's never enough until every person yeah. on earth hears it i mean exactly and that so you also did a song for so you you put your music into this whole process as well so tell us a little about that how you connected music to the boxing mm -hmm. yeah so a couple two years ago i'd say i read a book called the book of five rings by um, a guy named miyamoto musashi and that guy was a japanese samurai slash shogun and then the whole book was about it was a martial arts text but it, it shows hard work. The main idea of the book is sticking to your craft and keeping on and keeping the grind. That's the main idea of the book. That's what I took from it. Um, so I read that book and I applied it to music years later as in the song Five Rings. And the song is about like hard work dedication that it takes for music. When I did that music video, when we were thinking of what we were going to do for the music video, we decided to shoot it boxing because at the time I had just started boxing and it was something I was very dedicated to and very passionate about. So we decided to shoot the video at the gym that I worked out at. And that one thing led to another and opportunities started to show. And then we decided to work with USA boxing because I didn't, I didn't know how, how tough it was until we talked to USA boxing and did this whole, um, we started doing this charity events, like these charity events. And that, um, it helped. Like it, it definitely, um, went from one thing to another. It just started, it started from a book, then the song, then the boxing, and now USA boxing. 
Gotcha. So that's a great story in the song. Tell us about the song. <laughs> what genre is it? It's weird. Like I call my music <laughs> urban pop because it doesn't fit to an exact genre. I'd call it more hip hop slash melodic rap because there's a lot of different aspects in the music that I make. That's why I just call my music urban pop just because it makes it's, I grew up in an urban environment and I try to make popular music, but for five rings, I'd say it's more melodic hip hop, a bit of R and B, a bit of rap. Okay. Wow. You might just have a new uh, genre in your name. <laughs> yeah. Y'all created all from that. And so that's the thing you're put, connecting all those things, your music and everything. What, what has been the feedback so far from the help you've had? So especially, I guess, the media feedback. What about the people you're helping? What have you been hearing on it's that? It's been extremely positive. When I was in Atlanta, one of the girls that worked at, um, worked at the gym, she was one of the – she used to work at a gym down the street, and then she moved to this gym. She was talking about how it's such it's, – she feels like the gym was such like a family environment. And then she was, she was an ex-veteran. She was – um, she used to be a drug addict and then boxing and, and working out really, really saved her in a way. And it was wow. like, I had like a, a short talk with her and it was just that one short talk was amazing because it really showed how I'm like, it showed that what I'm doing is really helping. And to have her come up to me and say, listen, um, I was an ex vet. I'm an ex drug. I've been, I've done it all. And really everything that you're doing for us right now really means the world to me. And that, that really, that really was amazing for her to come up to me and say that. Wow. And you have a counseling and a mentoring gift as well. Good for you. That's great he, for his age, Dave. He's changing the world. One Wish we were, what were we doing, Dave at 18? We weren't changing yeah. the world. We were busy, I was busy uh, going to college. And what were you doing at 18, Dave? I was going to college, got married at 21, had a kid at 25. Oh, gosh, yeah. So you're a little more. I had a kid at, I, let me see here. I got married at 25, a kid at 29. Now I'm six, but yeah. So there goes the, I caught up from that end, Dave. But wow. You, any uh, any girlfriends? Uh, yeah. Gigi? Yeah. Not Sorry. Sorry. I feel like it would be, t I feel it would be tough Distracting. for me to have a girlfriend and be able to spend time with her. I didn't want to start dating someone. Yeah. And then be like, oh, I have work. We can't hang out today. Because a lot of stuff is, it's day by day. I pretty much live day by day. Every day changes. You're always running. Always running the yeah, next thing. Uh, I'm, sure I'm sure you get many offers though, right? We got some offers. <laughs> there. No, but, see, but see, the thing he's smart as on the road. So, so even though COVID, now you're back traveling some too with your music. Are you doing some traveling? A lot of traveling? Mm -hmm. No, we're doing traveling mainly for the USA boxing right now. Oh, so you're going to be going from one place to the next place to the next place. So explain where you're going to be going in oh, the next fun. couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So we just went to Atlanta and we got back last, or the, yeah, last Sunday. And then next, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to start doing, we're organizing a tour around Florida right now. So we're going to be visiting. I mean, now I'm in Miami. So we're going to be visiting a lot of the USA boxing gyms in Miami. Then we're going to go to Tampa. Orlando, Jacksonville, a lot of the major cities and um, doing similar charity events that we did in Atlanta. That's just great. Uh, is anybody out there doing what you're doing? You're like one of a kind. Thank you. Yeah, I try. 
I try my best. So let's get the spotlight on your music. Now, music was the first thing. This has come out of nowhere, right? So now you're like, what is the brand? Define Dietschy's brand now. What is it? So you know what I mean? Because now you've added this other charitable component that when I was first introduced to you by your publicist, it was just the music. Now it's much more. What do you say? What do you think your brand is? Because we, Dave and I talk branding all the time. Dave, we've really not mentioned as it, as it has been on uh, how many TV shows, local just TV shows? I did my 50th two days ago, 50 TV 50 shows. 50 local TV shows. I have had 7,000 plus interviews on my network and I have a 5 million listener viewers per week on my network. I've interviewed major celebrities. So we all know how we're defining our brand. Clubhouse is another part of my brand now, being on social audio all the time killing it but and speaking in front of hundreds of people all the time on that you define your brand now because first we're just thinking the music now you've added that charitable component tell me no i think my brand is just constantly evolving i feel like we can be right now it started as music my brand mainly at first it was just music now it's music and boxing and charity then in the future my one of my goals one of my long-term goals is to do clothing so then we could add that aspect later in the future. So I think it's mainly just being able to, it's just constantly evolving and always having a positive impact. I think it's one thing to only do music, but what's the point of success if you can't help other people become successful as well? Because you could have everything in the world, but exactly. what are you doing for other people? Yeah, you're you're end, an entrepreneur also. Oh yeah, in the end, it's like we're all a community, whether it's, like no matter what it is where we all live on earth together, we're all a community. So if I'm successful, what can I do to help someone else? So mainly I think the best way to describe my brand would just be positivity, like having a positive impact. See, I love that. I love that about you and your energy at 18. Like I said, I, at 18, I'm trying to remember, I was just focused on playing college basketball at McDaniel college, graduated undergrad. I mean, I was graduated high school in 1991. I think I was 18 years old, went on to play at Western Maryland then went up to go transfer schools and became a professional wrestler, hit the pro wrestling circuit. So uh, a lot of ways I've learned in branding through just trial and error. It seems like you've studied this. You're learning this firsthand and then smart. I, I like the idea of you not having a girlfriend, but you'll find somebody who will be willing to travel with you. You'll find somebody who's going to be that one that believes in you and understands this is what your, your, your life is. And I think a lot of people, when we choose not to go, what we truly love, it comes back to haunt us later on in life. And yeah. so keep it going. I'm so impressed by you. And Dave, uh, so I just kind of wanted to jump onto that, that point of view. But for your fans out there, like for the music, so you're doing all the different stuff. Are you going to be performing as well when you do these events? Are you performing or you have other plans for performance as well, performing as well as musicians? So at the events, it really depends, but... At the events, most likely I won't be performing. It'd mainly just be a charity event. We'd, we'd be there just to, just to oversee and, and watch and be involved and donate. So performances we'll see in the future. Right now, I have an audience, but my audience isn't big enough to be do big performances. And it, we'll really see in the future. It's really dependent also, especially now with COVID, Delta. Um, it really... Really Why don't you do a, a music video that you've already have? Just show that. Uh, that would be a great addition to your charity event. And Definitely. No, we just finished up another music video. We did a reshoot yesterday, actually. For, That's um, kind of cool. 
That's so what do you think of you as a producer? Are you behind the scenes in the video or you have the expert looking at it? Are you still looking at it? How do you define that music video? Think about the days of you know MTV, Yo MTV raps and how music versus was the VJ and MTV if you're a history as a musician and now seeing where videos are shooting now and they're all YouTube or you know or specifically other platforms to, to check out videos on Facebook and things like that. Where do you see when when you shoot a music video? How much is your creativity involved versus who you've hired to help shoot it? Yeah, so it's it's a joint effort between me and Brian Barrel. Brian Barrel's the my director, but we kind of both direct the video. Like he gives his input, I give my input. And we kind of work together to find um, an agreement and things that can work, things that can't work. And it's I kind of co-directed, I guess. All my videos I co-direct because. Brian Barrel, he provides, he gives me an idea. I build off of that idea or I give him an idea. He builds off of that idea. So it's really a joint effort in um, directing. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really, um, I'm happy to be able to work for, work with um, a great director such as Brian. Awesome. We've shot like, we've shot eight videos now, I think. That's awesome. And that's fun. I love that component. I want to do more of my business. I've created and produce two video commercials, one for a photographic memory business and also for a former company I was with, Lensec. So I have been in that, that behind the scenes. I produced TV shows before. It's fun in that process because you see the creativity and development of where it goes. I love brands, but I also like to put together things, looking at how websites are built. I can't build a website, but I sure as heck can come up with ideas how to design it. It's so important, the creatives. We're all creatives on this program right now. Dave is a true creative. And if you talked about what we talked about on our show a couple of weeks ago, he talked about how he's a celebrity entrepreneur and how you too are a celebrity, but also a celebrity entrepreneur yourself. How many 18 year olds are out there music that are creating other things when I have a clothing line, all those different things people would dream for that. So Dave, yeah. you're going to go to your caregiver question because I'm going to close it out with that. But that's why we call him caregiver Dave Nassani. Go ahead, Dave, and tell us why. Yeah, well, it's a strange question for someone as young as you, but uh, my wife had a stroke 21 years ago. She reinvented herself, went through the grief process, decided if she's alive, there must be a reason God has her here. And so I've, I've been ministering to people who take care of sick people and people with disease, people who are dying and, you know, grandparents, parents, people who are old or people who uh, have cancer, et cetera. And 30% of these people who care for people actually die before their loved ones do because they, they are so internalized in what they do that they just give and give and give and there's nothing left to give. And, you know, they need to learn to put their own oxygen mask on first. Mm -hmm. uh, so my question to you, I know you probably haven't thought about it, but maybe you've seen other caregivers, maybe in your family, maybe your grandparents, maybe your parents, uh, what kind of experience or exposure have you had to caregiving? No, yeah, so my grandfather and grandmother right now are like, like their health has deteriorated over the past couple of years. Um, like, like yesterday, the day before, my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, so sorry. Um, that was like tough. Um, so they they live in Japan. My grandparents. So uh, for caregiving, every every year I'd go to Japan. Like for the past decade, probably my my grandparents have been getting like worse and worse and worse in terms of their health. And then for the past decade, every summer I'd go to Japan for a couple months and I'd live with them. I'd take care of them. My, my for cousins, you. When, like, I don't know. I feel like my cousins weren't there as much as I was for my grandparents. 
And every summer I'd go to take care of my grandparents, whether that's go get groceries for them, live with sure. them, need anything, cook for them, anything. And then, um, and then a couple of days ago, my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer, which is like, um, cause he has, he has like a tumor in his, um, esophagus. Yeah. How old is he? He's 88 now. Mm. So he's like, he's on his way out and it's tough to, to deal with because sure. right now it's tough to get into Japan. So I can't like, if I could, I'd fly tomorrow. Yeah. Who, who cares for him when you're not around? My grandma was taking care of him, but my how grandma. She, how's she doing? She, she had open heart surgery. Oh my gosh. Caregiver ago. needs a caregiver, right? Yeah. So then my, my grandfather now, he, like, because he was just diagnosed with cancer, he's in the hospital right now. So my grandma's living alone. Oh, no, and then no. she had open heart surgery a couple months ago. So it's even tough for her to live by herself. So right now she, there's no one. There's no one to take care of her. Oh my God. You're not able to go into the country, right? Because of COVID, correct? Yeah. Oh gosh. And the government doesn't have any programs to uh, bring help in. Um, there's there's programs that she, that she uses like they she has people bring food to her house, so she doesn't have to go grocery shopping. Yeah. And stuff like that, but still, it's still a tough situation. I think yeah. for her, despite even with all the government care, it's it's just a tough situation. Yeah. And I'm sure it weighs on your heart. Uh, so add caregiver to your resume because that's what you are. Yeah, isn't it amazing? See, Dave, you never know. See, you never know our guests. So where, Dichi, where can we find info? Where's the best place we can go and find out about you know, the charity stuff, but also your music? Yeah, so on dgmusic.com, D-I-C-I music.com, that it'll show you all my, all my social medias, whether that's YouTube, Instagram, everything. And then also on there, you'll find the link for Bandcamp, which is the link for the charity where you can buy five rings and all the proceeds go to USA Boxing. And you can also find all the articles, everything on dcmusic.com, D-I-C-I music.com. Again, I'm impressed by this guy, Dave. He's, yeah, me too. He's, uh, he's definitely is going to be an up and comer talking to him about all branding and conversations we could have a blast just talking about how to create a brand develop a brand understand a brand and he's learning and he's educating himself and i don't know i was educating myself in college at 18 so there you go great job man keep it up but it's uh you're yeah. living the life you keep it going and uh appreciate you coming on neil haley show so thanks again Love you. great talking right. take care guys all right appreciate Love that you. was the neil haley show take care guys Please listen to the Forletta podcast. Larry Forletta, a retired DEA agent turned private investigator, will bring you true life stories on the war on drugs with some of the most infamous international drug traffickers of all time, to name a few. Pablo Escobar, Manuel Noriega, Joaquin Guzman, aka El Chapo, and other related real-life crime stories such as Waco. For information, please visit his website at www.fcisllc.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special simulcast of Freedom Projection, Truth, Just, Below the Service, and the old Haley Show. I'm excited. Welcome for him, Webber, Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? I'm doing good this morning, uh, and uh, our program today is entitled Accidental Intestinal Consumption of Live 
COVID-19 virus in Missouri and the results. And my guest today is Dr. Mark Hayden. Dr. Hayden's a frontline COVID-19 treating physician and scientific investigator and inventor. He has been on this show many times previously, and I would invite you to go back and review all of his presentations using the reverse search engine to find the shows at www.freedomfromaddiction.libsyn.com. Spell Libsyn, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N, no caps and no spaces. Good morning, Mark. Good morning. Um, you sent me some correspondence the other day, and that's going to be the basis for this um, program. But first, I would like for you to summarize for the listening audience who may not have heard your previous programs, your history working with oral ingestion of COVID virus. Sure. Um, it was very well understood that coronavirus, the entire coronavirus family, grew in your intestines. When it grows in your intestines, and so for at least about a third of Americans had already encountered a member of the coronavirus family as children or earlier in their life, uh, they don't remember the GI side effects of it, even though it likely grew in their intestinal tract. What they remember is when they were younger and they met benign forms of coronavirus, they would have a runny nose, they would have a cold. And so we would call it coronavirus cold. Nobody really cares about a coronavirus cold because no, all you get is a runny nose and it goes away and you might have to take something to nasal decongestion. Then coronavirus began to be slightly aerosolized. And that was with the original coronavirus variant. Uh, the CDC had been aware that coronavirus was gradually becoming aerosolized. And they had actually off the books I guess with a very little fanfare and publicity, began to investigate it. The CDC is actually regulating the Fort Detrick biowarfare lab. Not only did they regulate it, but they actually shut it down right when the pandemic began. That was a, a little strange timing, and you know, roll your eyes at that. But the CDC, under its authority, as biodefense was investigating gain of function, i.e., can you make it better aerosolized or more pathogenic, and can you investigate it in other animal strains? Next thing you know, we've got a worldwide pandemic with an aerosolized coronavirus. Now, that is interesting. Because in 6,000 years of human history, at least, you know, I, I believe that when, you know, if you go back 2,000 years before Christ, there was still history being recorded. We don't have any records of aerosolized coronavirus. But of course, that's what we've been dealing with in the world for about the year and a half. 
Now, the CDC came out and the CDC had been responding to big corporations, big pharma, and everybody in a bureaucracy, you develop a culture and the culture is very responsive to the needs of big pharma, big money, and just uh, the financial aspects of, 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 of the system. And so they turned to the biggest pharmaceutical companies, which were right there. And they said, hey, we've never had a successful vaccine, but let's just do IM with mRNA and some others adenoviruses. And so what we had was some, some vaccines began to be offered earlier this year. However, the entire population of the world began to be put into a panic especially in the United States. People began to, they were panicked because they were told that massive numbers of people could die. That it would be one of the worst things they had ever experienced. And uh, they, of what could happen. People based on fear began to give up their civil rights. They gave up their rights to meet together, to worship, they gave up their rights to, for political assembly. And all this was done under the guise that the CDC wants to protect you. But of course, the CDC's excuse was they didn't understand the virus. And one of the reasons they didn't understand the virus was they didn't engage in any research on live subjects. You know, to research with live subjects, you have to have a live virus and you have to have a subject that's willing to take it. And then you examine that subject while he's taking it. It's called, it's called a, a human guinea pig or human test. Now, the CDC was willing to test 150 million Americans with experimental messenger RNA vaccines, but that's okay. That was an experimental vaccine. But when it came to actually experimenting on a few hundred people, or even a few thousand, the, the CDC wouldn't do it using live virus. Now, what set me apart as a physician, as a researcher, was that I did live testing on myself. And what I found was basically obvious that the intest by that taking oral live virus produces little or no symptoms. If you had no exposure whatsoever, you actually might get a case of nausea and vomiting. However, we, most of the people in the United States and certainly in Missouri, endured a earlier stage of the pandemic. And during that pandemic that went on for months, life went on and people were breathing, exhaling live virus. That virus got on their food, their plates, their spoons, uh, and really they wound up accidentally ingesting it. Well, the World Health Organization came out and said, it's not, it's, it's not dangerous and it's generally safe to consume. That's nice and that's true. But what the World Health Agency didn't tell you was that it's actually beneficial for you to consume live virus on your food that was coronavirus. And now that sounds incredibly 
whoa, are you telling me that a virus that, it, that you inhale and can cause pulmonary disease, that if you eat it, it can ex- give you exposure and give you immunity. That's exactly what I'm telling. And that's exactly what happened. So let's just see for a moment what the sewer, what the sewer shed surveillance project shows. Can you see the screen, uh, uh, Wynn? I can. Okay. First of all, let's say what the sewer said surveillance project is. Early on, the CDC agreed that it is growing throughout the colons and the intestines of the United States. And that if we track it in the sewer systems, we can see when it shows up in certain areas. Because sewer systems, everybody flushes the toilet. You've got to get rid of the the sewage, and the sewage actually has live virus in it. Fortunately, nobody has ever spread really live virus from stool into respiratory. So you don't get stool to respiratory transmission because we don't aerosolize our stool in the United States. We flush it and send it to the septic system. So at the sewer said surveillance system, what they do is they sample once a week the sewage and see how much COVID is in the sewage. And they also, which is, you know, uh, praise to uh, Missouri, is they track what type of variant. So let's go and look for a second at what the sewer shed showed about See, here's a a sewer system. There's a sewer system. I don't know whether that picture was taken in Missouri or not, but that's a standard sewer system. They talk about variant testing. And if you Google up here, if you Google sewer sedge surveillance project, you can study this yourself. Now, here we go. Here's our variant dashboard. Let's see see what comes up here. They actually show titers of how the titers are which is a titer is the total colony counts in millions or tens of millions. And there are literally, here it is, viral load. Consider this about how many of the coronavirus are being deposited. Do you see this screen here, uh, Wynn? I can. Okay. So if we see, we had, if we look last year, There was a little bitty, there was a few scattered peaks back in early September and a little bit last in 4th of July. And then we get a really large peak right around before 2021. Do you see that? Do you see the main peak is on before 2021? It's really right about in December. Can you see that? Yes. What that peak represents is the maximum growth rate and the maximum peak 
for sewer viral load. And that reflects how many intestines are putting out and mass producing that virus, which is in the millions, millions and millions and billions of copies. Now, what we noticed is even before the vaccines showed up, guess what? There was these huge spikes, meaning that most of the people in Missouri were actually being exposed on their food. That's right. Now, imagine how complicated that makes it when you get your vaccine in Missouri. So you get your vaccine in Missouri and you don't have much of a response. I mean, you don't get sick and you don't die. Granted, I want you to know this and I freely admit this. Everybody needs some immune defense to coronavirus. You don't need a lot, but you definitely need some. We knew at very much that an, a natural infection meant that you were not transmissible, usually within about 10 days of the first symptom. 10 days within the first symptom, whether it was nausea and vomiting or whether, it, but what about those people who had a natural infection and never even knew they had it? Those people lost their transmissibility too. So the, a lot of times the people that were being transmissible, some people were gonna be transmissible, some people were not. We did not have a way to check and see who was immune and who was not. I think I came on your program when, and I began to suggest things like, hey, you could buy takeout from people who were cooking and breathing and exhaling virus all over your food. I think we I discussed, and I personally took coronavirus about four or five times myself, orally. And the more I took it, the less side effects I had. And in fact, I only had side effects the first time. I've never had a single case of vomiting from it. And yet my immune system was so strong that I was able to get around seven people having breathed coronavirus in my face without any symptoms. What we're seeing on viral load based on Missouri is the, the most of the people were already exposed prior to the spring of this year. Now, the, the virus was not set, staying unchanged. That was the first time a coronavirus had gone through the world as an aerosol, and it became better and better at being an aerosol. So now what we have is an aerosolized uh, variant, which is extremely well aerosolized. I wanna remind your listeners that originally the CDC said it wasn't an aerosol. Let's just add that up to their fabrications. And that's the reason why they were interested in it from the get-go. But you know, we don't have enough time in this program to, to go over all the statements. And of course, their, their excuse is, oh, well, we don't test on people. Well, if you don't test, you don't learn. But if they did do one good thing, and, and I should praise CDC, they did support the uh, sewer testing. And that is probably how you can actually show that most of the viral load has come months ago. Now, 
your listeners don't really care about stool counts. That doesn't mean anything to them. What they care about is, am I going to get sick? So let's look at, are you going to get sick in Missouri? Okay, let's, let's, let's look at, are you going to get sick in Missouri? Uh, I'm trying to get share screen on here. Hold on. I'm screen sharing. I got a new share. Okay, let's go to new share. And I'm going to go to... Um, I'll stay with this. Hold on. I'll go. Uh, are you seeing this screen? Yes. Okay. Let's look at what happened in Missouri. We know that the second wave started showing up in Missouri. The Delta wave started showing up in Missouri in early. It was actually in early uh, June. Over eight weeks ago. And if we look at our coronavirus uptick, and if we go to the state of Missouri, if you go to your state of Missouri, you'll see that in the last few weeks, the case number has gone up to almost 5,000 per month, 5,000 per day, excuse me. What is a case? You can't keep track of exposures by cases because if somebody's asymptomatic, they don't get a PCR. They don't get an antigen test. They don't get a test at all. If you do an antigen PCR test, you may actually get a false if it was multiplied too much or not done properly. And so what we see is, uh, let's, I was hoping, to, there we go, here we go. If we go to the state of Missouri and look at Missouri in particular, Mark, uh, if that chart indicates a case, does that mean that the person who is being put down as a case had a positive PCR test? It means they were reported to a health department. Now, there were lots of exposures. There were probably eight to 10 or 15 exposures for every one case. Most of those exposures happened to people that had already experienced the earlier variant. And they already had immunity. So even though they were exposed because they had eaten it on their burger or their sandwich six months ago, the new variant came into town and they get a, got a, inhaled a higher dose. But guess what? They didn't get symptoms because they already had developed immunity. Look at now you can see these daily new cases in Missouri here, can't you? Yep. And so what we're up to is you see the spike beginning to go up. Now, that's not exposures. I would say 
that the daily new exposures is on the order of 50 to 100,000. And it already happened four to six weeks ago in Missouri. What happened during this phase is people started actually checking when they were asymptomatic. So they go when they're asymptomatic, first one person gets tested and then another and then another. And then all these cases begin to spike. The severity of the cases, make no doubt about it, is very low. And the number of deaths, look at this Missouri death rate. It collapses. Look, I'm looking at many days there are no, no deaths attributed to COVID, to, to COVID in Missouri. Now, here's what's amazing. Let's say you went into the hospital and you were shot with a bullet. They would still classify you as a COVID death if after you got admitted, you had a positive COVID test. So the real number of actual deaths related to COVID are much lower than this. Now, bear in mind, we never got over, in Missouri, they never got over nine or 10 deaths. Those are deaths probably associated with COVID that were due to other causes, many of those cases. And if you look at that graph in particular, that death rate has just fallen out completely. Now, here's what you're not hearing on TV. Here's what you're not hearing. Fauci did not go to the American people and tell them good news. Delta showed up in the sewage system eight weeks ago in Missouri. It's all over the state. Half the people or two thirds or three fourths of the people have been exposed to Delta. Maybe more, maybe 80, 90 percent have been exposed to Delta. But our death rates have totally dropped out in Missouri. He did not make that announcement. And here's why. Fauci and the CDC already got behind vaccinations. Many of the people who are vaccinated may have some long term side effects. If those people who have long term side effects look over and see somebody else who didn't get vaccinated and they're through the pandemic, then they will think, you know, I, I didn't have to get vaccinated anyway. If I hadn't listened to Fauci and the CDC, I wouldn't have got this useless uh, vaccine. There was some use to it. In older people at high risk, it did reduce. And any exposure re reduced the risk of pulmonary injury. The safest exposure would have been GI exposure to take it orally. You would have had almost no symptoms. That was presented to Operation Warp Speed and they refused to hear it. I sent it to them, informed them of it. They ignored it and they ignored it because the government of the United States, like most governments, is controlled by bureaucracy, which in turn is controlled by the money. Common sense would have told you that if you had a GI virus, you could have used a live virus to as a vaccine. That was almost obvious. However, it was ignored. And the people that got Im immunity actually got it from other people accidentally breathing it on their food. When you look at this daily death count that goes to zero on many days, recognize that in the last eight weeks, 70, 80% of Missouri inhaled the most aerosolized variant of Delta. In a 
in a population that had never been exposed, you would have expected 1% to 2% deaths from Delta. So if you release that in North Korea or in parts of China, and you exposed four million people that had never had any exposure to Delta, you might expect at most one to two percent deaths. Okay, you're, but one to two percent is still forty to eighty thousand deaths. Delta is a much more transmissible variant. Delta is a much more uh, dangerous variant. However, the population changed in Missouri because they were already priorly exposed. And so I came on, and Neil, Neil knows this, about a month ago, I began to predict, hey, guess yes. what? This death rate is crashing out. Exactly. But we're seeing in the news, and I wanted to jump to this real quick, Mark. We're seeing in the news that everything's going to go crazy. Uh, last night, uh, my mom begged me to get the vaccine. I told her, no, I'm not. I said, first of all, I have two options. Well, if I do get COVID, even though I know I had COVID before, I've never been tested, but I know I have, I can go contact one of my doctors to get prescribed that I'm connected with ivermectin or, or hydroxychloroquine. Secondly, that shit, I am not getting a vaccine, especially when I've already have COVID. So I'm okay. I got, I'm cool. That's fine. But there's no, the, the news that's going out there, Mark, is not, Yes. The death what rate doing is, Now, here's how you here's how you cut through the pro- propaganda, folks. I had a friend of mine who had no exposure and then he got around Delta on a missionary trip. Most of the people in the group got it it's, with Delta. Instead of a few people in the room getting it, most of the people can get it. However, he had no exposure. He wound up being short of breath. He didn't get intubated. They are putting, they, they speak of hospitalizations. He went to the ICU, but you know what he got? He got an IV antiviral infusion for four days. When you tell people hospitalization, ask if they were hospitalized, are they on a vent? No. What you don't see is the number of people on ventilators because it, people aren't on ventilators because they're not dying from respiratory failure because the cases are all milder, because almost all the people have already been exposed. That's right. So you hear, hey, guess what? Hospitalizations are going through the roof. You'll hear that. that. But then ask, ask, the devil is in the details. Are these people being intubated? Or are they in the hospital to get an antiviral infusion? That's two totally different things. If they're not in respiratory failure, if they're not on a vent, they're not going to die. Okay, that doesn't happen. And even the antiviral is experimental. It may or may not work. But guess what? What the CDC likes about that antiviral is they can claim people are being hospitalized, how serious it is. That's right. Now, don't get me wrong. When here's the tragedy of COVID. And this is an utter tragedy is that you're separated from your family and your spouse when you're sick. The only way in which a person could safely stay around their family when they're exhaling virus is to go ahead and expose their intestinal tract. We went over this on the Wynn Henderson show. There were many millions of people that were sick. They were 
at home, their family left to protect themselves. In many cases, they would send their family away. Imagine people being sick at home with nobody to take care of them. When the people could have come in, they could have taken oral live virus and stayed and took care of their family members. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Uh, listeners, uh, tell your friends to come back to this podcast. They need to know what we talked about today. The address is www.freedomfromaddiction.libson.com, spell Libson, L-I-B as in boy, S-Y-N, no spaces, no capitalizations. And uh, do your friends and family a favor and try to get this information out to as many of them as possible. Neil, thanks for uh, All right. being on the program. You're welcome. All right, guys, that was Freedom from Addiction Truth. That's below the surface. And the O'Hay Show. Take care. Celebrity slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download. Free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today.